We're going to spend moments together in God's Word looking at the glory of Jesus. I know there are other things that sometimes take people's time away and can attract our senses. Um, I, I know that tonight starts the beginning of one of those times. Uh, just so you know, it's the glorious season we once again call Shark Week. And uh, yeah, it starts tonight. Um, so you're going to be able to learn which shark is the greatest, which one is the most deadly, and which one is a myth, which one is true, are they still around, and all those kind of things. Or if you turn to the Sci-Fi Network, you can watch Sharknado and that kind of thing and see the ridiculous that that's there. But today, we're going to look at something far greater that has been given to us, that has been made known to us. And, and it is not just around for one week and, and, or for a limited time only. Yes, the day we are in the last days. Every day that we live is a day closer to the day that Jesus returns. There is no doubt about that. But Jesus is the eternal one. He is the one who has always been, the one who will always be, the one who is. And all of these are captured within the words of the book of Hebrews as we look and see how Jesus is better. Now you may say, I don't need the Bible to tell me that Jesus is good. Uh, Grandma said it, I believed it. That may have been it. You, you prayed at the table, God is good. God is, let us thank Him for our... Amen. And that might have been the limitation to the prayer in your household, but you heard that God is good, God is great, so it must be gospel, it must be solidified news. I believe it because grandma said so. And I'm thankful if you had a grandma like that that told you that God is good. There is something blessed about that. I, too, had a grandma that told me God is good. But here's the problem. My faith cannot be dependent on grandma's faith. My faith can't even be dependent on grandma's goodness. And so that is not foundation enough if you go out and someone would say, why do you believe that Jesus is worth sharing? Why do you believe Jesus is worth praising? Why do you believe Jesus is worth living on mission for? Why do you believe Jesus is worth loss for? And you tell them, because grandma said. They're going to look at you like the people that watched Waterboy looked and said, alligators are mad because they ain't got no toothbrush. And that would sound about the same level, no matter how good your grandmas are. We may say, well, I believe Jesus is better because He's gave us His country. We have the freedom of the red, white, and blue. And so if, if you're a true American, you're going to love Jesus because Jesus loves America. That's why He's greater. Then what do you tell to people that come from other nations that are broken. That do not have the freedoms that we have. In fact, their following of Jesus, or even hearing and seeing the profession of Jesus by others, cost the utter destruction of people's lives as they face martyrdom. They could say, well, what if you lived in another country? You wouldn't believe as I do, because you don't have America. That's not foundation enough to trust and say Jesus is better. No matter how good America is. You may say, well, uh, it's just my culture. I, I, I grew up in, in this banner and this kind of thing under this type of church. And they say, oh, okay, it's just your upbringing. Well, your upbringing says this, and you seem to be a good one of those. But my upbringing says this, so this is what I believe. 
And so what they'll say is, that sounds like it's true for you, but it's not true for me. See, even saying my upbringing says it is not good enough, no matter how good that upbringing was. You see, we need something solid to show and present and say, this is how I know Jesus is better. Not only what He has done and what I have experienced in my life, because all kinds of people can blame their experiences on what they believe. But what the Bible has told us, what this source that has been tested and tried and true has revealed to us about this Jesus. And why do I say that? Well, we live in a world that is very topsy-turvy at times. And it's not a world that's far different from the times of the apostles. It's not a world that's far different from the times of the Old Testament. The world has always been topsy-turvy as it has fallen. And in need of restoration and redemption from Jesus. And in this world of uncertainty, the message of Jesus seems like foolishness. In fact, the book of Romans says that people today even suppress the truth. It's like they should know it by what's around them, but they suppress it. So how can you have a solid basis of what you believe about Jesus and why He is better and why He's worth everything? Well, that's where the book of Hebrews comes into play. You see, the book of Hebrews, as we're going to look, is written to the Hebrew people, and it seems it's in one of the times of persecution as these Jewish Hebrew people, many of them probably priests, had left Judaism and yet faced all the, the radical changes that that, that incurred upon their life. They, they had left the, the faith of their family. Now, we would say they didn't leave the faith of their family, they just found it complete in Jesus. But for those who said that Jesus wasn't who He said He was, it was a big deal to say, yeah, Jesus is who He says He is. And so many were cut away from their family and their way of life. And they began questioning, well, if Jesus' grace is just good and it basically covers all my sin, well, maybe I'll just slide over here. He he won't worry about that. It won't be that big of a deal. And I'll just blend in and not cause an upheaval. Maybe my profession that Jesus is better is better kept under wraps. But if Jesus is better, how can we keep that news to ourselves? How can we keep what God did not keep to Himself, to ourselves? So let's stand and let's look at what Hebrews says. And as we stand and honor the reading of God's Word, we're going to be looking at Hebrews chapter 1. Now, if you're using one of our pew Bibles, that's going to be on page 1061 if you're having trouble finding it. Um, it's going to be near the, the right side of your Bible, close to the end, but it's not quite the end. But it's going to be on the screen behind us. So we're going to be reading from the Christian Standard Bible. Um, and you can follow along in whatever copy you have, whether digital or print. If you are following God by the glow of the digital iPad, that's fine. But this is what the Bible says. And the Bible is God's authored, breathed out, inspired, infallible, inerrant word. And it tells us this. Long ago, God spoke to the fathers by the prophets at different times and in different ways. In these last days, He has spoken to us by His Son. God has appointed Him heir of all things and made the universe through Him. The Son is the radiance of God's glory in the exact expression of His nature, sustaining all things by His powerful Word. 
After making purifications for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. So he became superior to the angels, just as the name he inherited is more excellent than theirs. Lord God, we have read from your word. May we not do it disservice. May it have what it has promised that it would go out and not return void in its time and its way in the lives of men. And I pray that we who have ears would listen to it today as you, God the Holy Spirit, make your holy word known to us. May we learn all together and bring glory to you in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. Now, I know people sometimes when they read the Bible, you may come in here and have questions about, well, what does that even mean? What is that trying to say? And, and those are all good questions. In fact, I would say those are the fundamental, foundational questions for growing in the grace and knowledge of Jesus. is When we open the Bible, we have a curiosity. What does it say? That's why I'm so grateful we live in a place and have times where the Bible is made known to us and written to us. And I'm so thankful that we have opportunities to continually share in bringing that written word to others. Uh, just so you know, cool little uh, moment that happened at the Southern Baptist Convention that was back in June. Uh, the International Mission Board, which a part of your offerings every week here at this church go to fund the missions of the International Mission Board. Well, they had a special uh, opportunity for those that were present that at $5 a verse, you were going to translate, we were going to translate the New Testament into the language of an unreached people group. And it was more than fully funded by those that were there. I mean, it was awesome. All verses. You're taking every single verse and $5 per verse and all, we were more than fully funded for that version and probably the beginning of another uh, people group's New Testament. So it is good that we help people have the word in its language, in their language. But we also need to say, alright, not only what it says, but what it means. We live in a world where it's very easy to, for people to take out one piece of scripture, one piece of text, and try to come up with all kinds of numerable meanings of it. That it's living and breathing, yes, but it takes on a meaning to be dependent on the reader. No, the Bible was given in the way that it was given for a particular task, for a particular time, for a particular people. And it's been preserved for us so that we go back and look and say, based on the history, based on all that's around it, this is what this means. It can't mean less than that. It will never mean less than that. And anything that detracts from that is wrong. But then when we see what it means, then we begin saying, now that I know what it means, now I can look at it in its frame of reference, now I can see the real application, the significance to my life now. That doesn't change the meaning, but shows the richness of its application to its people. But it begs us to ask, what will we do with what God is saying? Now you may be reading the book of Hebrews and saying, all right, that's interesting, and you may have done what I used to do in in church when I would be curious, that seemed kind of neat, that Bible passage, or that seemed kind of odd, I don't know what that's going from. And you begin reading ahead, and you start seeing, alright, it's talking about the angels, and all these kind of things, and and maybe wondering, alright, I'm getting kind of lost, even in the beginning part of Hebrews, and what this means. So let's look at the root from Hebrews real quick. More than any other book in the New Testament, there are 27 books. Some of them are letters. Some of them are uh, apocalyptic books telling us about what's ahead. Some of them are history, like the book of Acts. Some of them are eyewitness accounts, like the Gospels. But this is a letter. But more than any other book in the New Testament, the, the book of Hebrews, it ties the Old Testament history and practices 
to the very life and ministry of Jesus. It's saying, all right, this was all that was promised and produced and prepared, and this is how Jesus is better. Jesus is truer. He is more perfect. There is a betterness that's found in him. It's showing that the Old Testament was this old covenant, but the Old Testament had promised in the days to come, God was going to do something new. And it would be for all people. And Jesus is that fulfillment. Now, the curious thing about Hebrews, we don't exactly know who the author is. Uh, we, we believe he was a first or second generation Christian. Um, he said he had heard it from people, so we don't believe he was one of the actual apostles that followed the very ministry of Jesus as an apostle. But he said this is how he had heard from this. So some believe he was maybe Luke or Barnabas or Apollos. We don't really know. And honestly, while we could spend a lot of time trying to figure it out, it really doesn't make the difference in the end who the author is because it points us back to God as the inspirer of it, the, the creator of it. We also see the book of Hebrews was written at a time when the temple and the way of Jewish worship was still in practice. So it gives us a little glimpse about when it was written. It was obviously written before 70 A.D. Why do I say obviously? Because the whole book of Hebrews is saying that do not forsake this way of the Lord and return to these old ways of laws and covenants and sacrifices. If the temple had already been destroyed by the Romans in 70 A.D., it would have only given the writer of Hebrews even further ground saying, See, I told you. That's not what it's about. So it gives us a clue that this was written within the first and second generation of those who were in the time of Jesus. So probably in the 60s A.D., uh, within 30 years of Jesus, His resurrection, but before A.D. 70 when the fall of the temple and the fall of Jerusalem. We also see it was a time of persecution and that matches up with the time period of Nero in the mid-A.D. 60s. But then there's the goal of Hebrews. You see, the author of Hebrews wanted to keep pointing back to people why Jesus, and it uses these words over and over again, is more excellent. More excellent. Keep that in mind. So as we look today, and we want to take a glimmer of a few, a glimpse of a few things. We want to see how this Jesus is so much better from the very forefront because he's not just some other guy. He's not even just some religious guy or some high-minded philosophical guy or some martyrdom guy or a holy guy. Yes, he had wise sayings. Yes, he was a wise teacher. Yes, he was holy. Yes, he died in martyrdom. But Jesus is so much more. We're going to see that Jesus is not just any man, not just any guy. He's the eternal and glorious God. He's the king, the one who we owe our entire allegiance to. And that Jesus coming to earth and being seen and witnessed by so many, being public in who he was. He didn't say, I have this hidden knowledge. And if you come away with me privately where no one else can see what I, who I am or what I'm doing, just so they can just li live in secrecy what we're doing. No, he says, I, what I'm doing is very public. It made it known that we can look at Jesus and have assurance that Jesus is indeed who he says he is, he does what he says he does. And that is why we can proudly proclaim Jesus is more excellent. He is greater. He is better. So what we find in the book of Hebrews is we find it's a book for evaluation. 
It helps us evaluate things and compare apples to apples. Evaluation was needed in the middle of this world filled with conflict, and it still is needed. In a world with mixed messages, man, you got to sometimes compare and say, what am I really looking at here? And when there's temptations to depart what has been passed on to us, it's really time before we do that to say, is this worth it or is this worth it? Once again, the book of Hebrews talks about the betterness of Jesus. So if you hold these two things, Jesus is going to excel. It's going to talk about the perfection of Jesus, that He's not only going to excel, but he won't even, other things won't even compare because Jesus is perfect. And it's going to talk about the eternal nature of Jesus, that what we have in Jesus was not once something long ago, but is something once and for all. It's a book for evaluation that helps us to compare what we're looking at in life. It's also a book with exhortation you may not use that word exhortation very much and most of us say i'm going to go exhort a brother you know we don't usually speak that way but we practice that whenever we see someone out of control or going and slipping in the way that they shouldn't be perhaps it's our children perhaps it's a co-worker perhaps it's a friend be like i'm not using the word exhortation but i am demonstrating exhortation i am not cool with this and this is why The evaluation helps us to present that exhortation well. That says, because of who Jesus is, how would you ever do this? And so the book of of, of Hebrews, it, it tells people to beware of drifting away from the Word. These promises that were given. It tells them to beware of doubting the Word. That if you drift, you're going to doubt. And if you drift and you doubt, your heart's going to become dull to the words. It's become insensitive to it. And if you drift and you doubt and you become dull, you're also going to begin despising the Word because anytime somebody brings it up, you're like, I don't want to hear that. And if you begin drifting and doubting the Word and have dullness towards the Word and despise the Word, you end up moving towards a life that defies the Word. And so the, the, the book of Hebrews, it's telling the readers that are there, that are going through these moments, and, and, and they're evaluating. He's saying, I'm exhorting you, do not find yourself in this place. This is a pattern that our ancestors and peoples over time have found themselves, and yet Jesus in His grace is, is calling us back to Him. The book of Hebrews is not only a book of evaluation and exhortation, it's a book of examination. It's a, that place where we ask, what am I really trusting in? Why should I be trusting in what I trust in? And how can I trust what I should trust? We began examining where our lives are. And we need to have our hearts established by grace. That's one of the reasons the book of Hebrews is written. Hebrews 13, 9, to have your hearts fixed, established by grace. And when we read, even in this opening part of Hebrews, what we see is revelation of God that He chooses to make Himself known. We see imagery of the creation. We see a lesson on the Trinity. We see the relationship between the Old Testament and the New Testament. We see Christology and how Jesus is exalted. And we see atonement. All these things are causing us to examine and say, wow, this is what Jesus has done. This is why I should trust in Him. The book of Hebrews is also a book of expectation. It tells us looking back at the Old Testament promises and the Old Testament way and how Jesus has provided that now we get to live a life of glorious expectation. That the life we now live is not like the old way. We have something greater to look forward to. And it's a book of exaltation. Talking about the glory that is found in Jesus. The empire that belongs to the kingdom 
It belongs to Jesus. The creation that belongs to Jesus. The power that belongs to Jesus. The redemption work that is found in Jesus. And the excellent worth of Jesus. So, let's look at some elements that we find here. The first element is in these verses, as we're looking at how Jesus' visitation changes our perception of God and helps us get a clearer view of Him as the eternal and glorious King. Let's look at this. The first thing we see is exposure to God. Here, the book of Hebrews, it doesn't try to give out a case of this is how you can know God exists and all these kind of things and spelling it out. It's not an apologetics course that is giving all this defense. It's saying God is. It's automatically assuming the reader understands that And if not, the reader better get that. God is. God has always been. God will always be. And so it's saying long ago, God did this. He's always been, but this is what He did long ago. It's not trying to prove anything. It's just telling you the fact of what the Bible has already said over and over again. But not only does it say that God is, it tells us that God is perceptible. That God can be heard from that god can be listened to because not because we're that keen or we're that smart or we're that good or we're that deep or we're that spiritual but because god spoke only reason that god is perceptible to mankind and with that he's knowable is because he chooses to be that's the only way because There is no way we would be able to figure it out on our own. We could probably figure out, well, there's obviously somebody bigger at play. There's a lot of people in the world that are agnostic that believe that there's a higher power. They just don't know who it is. They can look around and figure it out. But as far as knowing His name, as far as knowing His character, and knowing who He is and how holy He is and His righteous standard, it would be very hard for us to figure it out except for God saying, hey, guess what? Buddy, this is who I am. And who I am loves you. But I don't love the sin. So I'm going to pay the price. And this is how you'll know that I'm coming for you. So the writer of Hebrews says that God spoke to our fathers, those in the past, by the prophets at different times and in different ways. That God chose different times and different manners to speak His Word. The Bible theologians, they call this progressive revelation. That over time, God demonstrated and made Himself known in, in multiple ways, multiple avenues all pointing to the same person. But in a progressive way. We got to see glimpses of God. At the beginning, you see God as creator, and He's holy. But you also see in the book of Exodus, God is redeemer and lawgiver. And you see a little bit more as you go further and further. And talk about different times, different ways. God has used all kinds of ways. God has used dreams given to pagan rulers to draw them to Him. Or to draw others to be used by Him. That's what you see in Joseph and Pharaoh. God has used ridiculous situations, signs and wonders to declare who He is. God has spoken through very holy men. And if you may think, well, it only takes holy men to speak God's Word. I'm not worthy of doing that. Uh, Guess again, God has also spoken through a donkey. So I'm very thankful. If God can use a donkey, then then I guess I have a right to be here to tell you more about Jesus. If He can use a donkey, He can use someone like me. And He can use someone like you. God has spoken in different times in different ways. But also, the Bible tells us that of these different times in different ways, God has given a common grace so that all would see that there is a God. 
They can look around and as the book of Romans says that by creation, God's divine nature and invisible attributes, they're known. They're seen. So that no one is without excuse. But God has also given us His Word. So we have general revelation by the creation that God has shown that He is. And He's perceptible because of what He's done. But He also is the God who speaks by giving us His Word. The writer of Hebrews would have been focusing mostly on the 39 books of the Old Testament. But now we have the 66 books, the completeness of the New Testament, where the Old Testament is still good, but is insufficient. It is the book of promises, and the New Testament is the book showing that promises have been provided. So the the very opening part of Hebrews gives us this first element about Jesus. He is going to give you more exposure to God. That when you're seeing Jesus, He's going to give you this lens to see God. Which lends to the second part, the second element. That not only are you going to have exposure to seeing God, but when you look at Jesus, you have the embodiment of God. That He's the incarnate one. The writer of Hebrews says, in these last days He has spoken to us by His Son. That He, when He came, He was God saying, I have come to be the Word that was at the very beginning dwelling among you. That's what John 1.14 says. That the Word became flesh and made His dwelling among us. He made His abode, His abiding place with us. And we were able to behold His glory, the glory of the one and only, full of truth and grace. Full of glory. That's who we saw when we saw Jesus. The very incarnate, fully God, fully man, This is beautiful. This is awesome when you think about what God did to make Himself known. You see, there's always been two avenues that we see in in the philosophies of religion. There is people having man's way to God, trying to figure out their avenue to Him. And then you have what Christianity offers is God's way to man. John MacArthur wrote this. This is a long text. I just want to kind of summarize it up. The senses of man are marvelous, but they are incapable of reaching beyond our natural world. They are limited. And for us to know anything about God, He must be the one to tell us. Because we could never know God if He did not speak to us. That's why the Old Testament writer says God spoke. You see, man lives in a natural box that encloses him. And within it is the walls of time and space. And outside of this box... Of the natural is the supernatural. And somewhere deep inside of man himself, he knows it exists. The book of Ecclesiastes says God has put eternity in the hearts of man. But in himself, he does not know anything certain about it alone. So someone comes along and says, well, we must find out about the supernatural, the world out there, and then a new religion is born. Those who become interested, they they run to the edge of the box as close as they can get, and they get out their imaginative mental chisels, and they start to chip away a hole at the edge of the box, at least what they think is a hole, and through which they can hopefully somehow crawl and at least peer out and discover some secrets that man has not known by himself. And that figuratively is what seems to always happen. The Buddha says that whenever you have worked and thought yourself into Narnia, Nirvana, Nirvana, I know those first two, all of a sudden you are out of the box. And you have transcended the natural and have found your way into the supernatural. 
And the Muslims says basically the same thing, though in a different words. So do all religions. Zoroastrianism, Hinduism, Confucianism, whatever you may find. They're all attempts of man to escape the natural box to the supernatural. But the problem is, man himself can never get out. By definition, natural man can never escape into the supernatural. We cannot go into a religious phone booth and change into a superman. We cannot in ourselves, by ourselves, transcend our natural existence and know anything about God apart from God making it known to us. This is where the glory of the Bible comes into play, that God Himself, His way of coming to man, He became a man. He, the supernatural, entered the natural box to tell us more about Himself, the full, the complete, what is, what was, what will be. All of man's religions reflect his attempts to make himself a way to get out of the box. But the message of the Christ, however, is that the Son of Man has came to save and to seek that which was lost. This is the glory that's found in Jesus. This is what comes to life when we talk about Jesus. When the writer of Hebrews says, in these last days, He, God, has spoken to us by His Son, through His Son. The God-Man came. We saw Him. And not only do we have now exposure to God through His speaking, we have the embodiment of God because of His Son. This is why Jesus is better. This is why Jesus is so good that He came to be that embodiment for us. But not only to say, Hello! Here I am. He came to do something that gives us a greater explanation of God. Not only the exposure so that we could see and hear God, not only the embodiment so that we could have God, but the explanation so that we could know God. An 1800s evangelist wrote this about Jesus. Talked about how it's so extraordinary what we find when we really look at the life of Jesus, how mesmerizing it is. He says this. This is uh, Samuel Porter Jones from the 1800s. He, being Jesus, came from the bosom of the Father to the bosom of a woman. He put on humanity that we might put on divinity. He became man that we might become sons of God. He came from heaven where the rivers never freeze, winds never blow, frost never chill the air, flowers never fade. They never phone for a doctor there because no one is ever sick. No undertakers and no graveyards for no one ever dies and no one is ever buried. He was born contrary to the laws of nature. He lived in poverty, reared in obscurity, only once crossed the boundary of his land and that in his childhood. He had no wealth nor influence, had neither training nor formal education. His relatives were inconspicuous and uninfluential. In infancy, he startled a king. In boyhood, he puzzled the doctors. In manhood, he ruled the very course of nature. You see, he walked upon the billows and hushed the sea to sleep. He healed the multitudes without medicine and made no charge for his services. He never wrote a book. Yet in all the libraries of the country 
could hold the books that could be written about him. He never wrote a song, yet he has furnished the theme of more songs than all the songwriters ever combined could ever write. He never founded a college, yet all the schools together cannot boast of as many students as he has had. He never practiced psychiatry, and yet he has healed more broken hearts and broken minds than doctors have broken bodies. He never marshaled any army, drafted a soldier, nor fired a gun, yet no leader ever had more ready volunteers who have under his orders made more rebels stack arms and surrender without a shot being fired. He is the very star of all astronomy, the rock of all geology, the lion and the lamb of zoology, the harmonizer of all discords and the healer of all diseases. Great men have come and gone, yet he lives on. Herod could not kill him. Satan could not seduce him. Death could not destroy him. The grave could not hold him. He laid aside his purple robe for the peasant's gown. He was yet, he was rich, yet for our sake became poor. How poor? Just ask Mary. Ask the wise men. He slept in an animal trough. He cruised the lake in another man's boat. He rode on another man's donkey. He was buried in another man's tomb. All failed, but he never has. The ever-perfect one, he is the chief among 10,000. He is altogether lovely. He is the Christ. He is the son of the living God. A beautiful piece of writing from an 1800s writer. It's very inspiring, isn't it? But once again, as good as that is, that cannot be our good enough to tell people why Jesus is better. Not because some 18th century, 19th century writer put a poem about it. But the Bible tells us this is why. Because He is the inheritor of all things. Everything that was ever made, He has it all. It is His inheritance. He owns it all. It says that He is the creator of all things. And not only is He the creator of all things, this is how He created. He didn't have a chemistry set. He didn't have a salt shaker. He spoke and it happened. It gives us this imagery that He is not only the, the creator and the inheritor, He is the sustainer. He is sustaining all things in nature by His powerful Word. That in Jesus, not only did He start everything off and then just leave it spinning, every day He holds it together. This is the God that we talk about. This is the Jesus that we mention in our songs. This is the Jesus we pray to. That by His Word, everything is sustained. You want to see an interesting lesson? Go search on like the precarious nature of, of the earth and where it sits in astronomy. Like if it was any further away in its mileage or distance from the sun, it, it would freeze or burn up. That if it, if it was not tilted and rotating on an axis four seasons of the year, one part of the earth would be cooked. If it didn't have tides, we wouldn't have current. If it didn't spin the way we did, all the water would go to one way. It's immense, amazing. And yet Jesus sustains all of the universe that He created by His powerful words. This is the Jesus who is better. This is the Jesus, the explanation of Him is that He is the radiance of the Almighty. The radiance of God's glory. The exact expression of His nature. That all the brightness, all the glory, all the holiness, all the intensity that you could think of when you think of God is found in Jesus. 
He is the mediator of all who believe. He's after making purification for sins. He is that priest. The Bible talks over and over again about this Jesus who is prophet, the one who speaks God's Word and makes Him known to us. The priest who is the mediator of that perfect sacrifice and the King who reigns. Jesus is that mediator to all who believe. He gave them the right to become children of God. That while we were yet sinners, He died for us. He is that mediator. He is that majesty of all rule. It all falls in His hands. That whenever He had accomplished what He did, He sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. I've heard several writers, they've made news of this sitting down. You know, when you sit down, you know what that usually means, right? What, what does it mean when you come home and sit down in your chair? I'm done. At least today, I'm done. Many writers have made much that Jesus did all this and this shows the complete nature of His rule that, that He is the right hand of the majesty. He is the ruler of all things, but He also sat down that His work is complete. And this is why when you think of even the most holy of angelic beings, when you think of anything else in the supernatural, Jesus' name is far more excellent than theirs. See, when we get Jesus... And we see what the Bible tells us about Jesus. Not all these other good places that are okay, but they're not the foundational source. When we get into the Word and we see this Jesus, we get exposure to God. We're saying the God who is, the God who has always been, the God who always will be. I see you. When we get the embodiment of Jesus and, and Him stepping into our world and, and He makes Himself known to us, now when we get a God we can see, but we get a God we can hold. Not that we can keep in a box, because that, that won't happen. But a God that says, I invite you to draw near to Me. Because I have drawn near to you. When we get Jesus, we get the explanation that this is God who says, I don't choose to remain hidden. Choose to speak. And oh, what a treasure that is. I mean, if you really thought about it, God speaks. And the treasure that is found in, in just that, that knowledge. To really let it rock your mind that, wow, something I take so easily for granted. And I found myself even there before. That what I have here is God speaking. Something He really did not have to do. And were it not for His grace and and His working through people in the history of mankind, I probably wouldn't even hear it. But because of such such day, I was at a place where I heard God speaking to me. Maybe that's even today, for the first time. I don't know where you are with the Lord, but I want you to know this. Today I hope you've come to the conclusion, not based on my words, not based on this church and its presentation, but because God has spoken that Jesus is better. And the Gospel that He proclaims, that He is the Holy God, seeing the offense of our sin, He came to step out of heaven to live perfectly, which we were not capable of, to die in our place, which we should have had, so that He could be the purification for sins once for all. He has sat down because that work is done. But He's making Himself known to you so that you can experience and know the peace of God 
that comes from Jesus who is better. A Jesus who gives us eternity. A Jesus who transforms our life. A Jesus who sends us out and is worth sharing with a world that needs this Jesus. Let's pray. Lord God, today as we come to this conclusion and we get prepared to sing another song and and to depart and and to go about our Sunday business. Some of us may have dinner on the table. Some of us may be going and already got the restaurant thought out. God, I'm so thankful that, that there's a life that you have for the people ahead. But at this point, let us not be mistaken that there still needs to be this point where we come to a place, what will I do with what I've just heard? Because, God, you speak through your word and you call your people out of your grace to respond. So God, according to your grace, call your people to respond and help us do it. Help us trust and obey to see you are better. You are worth it. Whatever you're leading us to do, wherever you're leading us to go, whatever you're leading us to say, we must be about it. Jesus, have your way in this time. Amen.